So just as you're turning to James chapter 2, I did forget to mention in all of my excitement about giving my first offering sermon, the, uh, the point to continue to be prayerful for with the building is that the change of purpose clause would go through smoothly. I've been assured by town planners and others that it is just a process and that there's nothing that is looking at all untoward there, but that'll take some two to six months. So in a lot of ways, that's a blessing because it gives us some time to set our course of action, to raise some funds and to get a bit excited about the next phase and step of the journey. But please be prayerful for that. And we're going to pray now. Should have done that before, certainly as we begin the building vision and for our time in the Word this morning. So Father, we just thank you that you are a God of seasons, that you're a God who leads us, you're a God who guides us. And as we stand at uh, the precipice or the starting line of a, a great adventure that you are leading us towards in terms of establishing a permanent home. Father, we want to commit this journey to you. We want to thank you that not only you lead, but you sustain, you provide, you prepare the way. And we just ask that there would be evidence of your grace at every step of this journey, as there has been so far. We thank you in advance for your provision. We thank you, God, for your invitation for us to partner with you in this journey. And Father, may we be a people who never lose sight of the generosity of our God, the God who gave everything. And may we in turn be generous people, not just in terms of financial gifts, but in every way. May we live lives that reflect your gracious kindness towards us. And as we turn to your scriptures this morning, Lord, we pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to hear your voice, to see you more clearly. Father, thank you that you're always at work and we invite you through the power of your spirit to do a fresh and a new work in our lives. Recalibrate our hearts, Lord. Show us where maybe we're a little off track. Make us more like you and make us a people who proclaim brightly and joyfully the glorious grace of our Savior and our King. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So James chapter 2, if you've just come in, we're going to continue our series entitled Bold Living. James is just warming up here, but already if you've been around the last few times, so we've studied this book, you'll notice that he's got this passion, he's got this gentility and tact of a freight train at times. He just confronts. And as we've talked about already, he writes not so much to correct doctrine, but to correct lives. That's his passion at heart. It's this abrasive, almost kick up the behind at times that says, come on, we've got to get this right. We've got lives to live. We're a people who are called to, last time we talked about, to have a genuine faith, a faith that works, a faith that proclaims the glorious grace of our God, not a faith that is worthless. So in many ways, we're continuing on these same themes in chapter 2, but we're going to take 
a new, slightly different tact. And I'm going to read a large portion of Scripture from verse 1 down to verse 13, which all relates to this area or this theme of how we treat others. How do we treat other people? And how should we treat other people? So James says this in chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, well, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Love verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Triumph of mercy. We're going to talk about mercy and judgment. So what is it that James is saying is important in the way that we treat people? Let's let me give you a brief outline and then we're going to unpack a little bit each of these aspects. First of all, James says, do not show partiality. That word itself is an interesting word. It's very difficult to translate because it's actually an idiom or a saying. It literally means receive the face. Do not receive the face. Or perhaps a more modern example would be do not judge a book by its cover. Do not make judgments based upon purely what you see on the outside. Now, there's one example that he gives. He says, for example, and this is just an example. He says, if a man comes in and he's wearing fine clothing and rings, looking around, and he rings and fine clothing. We're all finely dressed this morning. And then another who comes in wearing very shabby clothing. I won't look around the room. Do you show partiality or preferential treatment to one over the other? And you see, this is just an example. Really what he is trying to illustrate to us is there should be no partiality within the people of faith. In this example, it's the rich and the poor. There could be other examples where I've known congregations and Christian circles where, in fact, often it's the poor elevated. And those who have money are looked down upon. It's almost as if, if you haven't given your money away to the poor, then you're not truly spiritual and religious. 
So the point here is not wealth and poor necessarily. It's any group that we might segregate based on any external opinion. So do not show partiality. Instead, do, he says, love your neighbour as yourself. And in fact, just in case you think, well, is he going a little overboard? Like, is he really thinking that this is a big deal? He puts this issue of judgment and partiality up with murder and adultery. He says they're all on equal standing. This is all part of the law. You can't break one and then uphold another and think you're doing okay. The example he gives is you can't be faithful to your wife and go and kill someone and think you're doing all right. Nobody says, oh, well, at least he's faithful to his wife. He's killing a few people, but we can overlook that. They're all on equal standing. Don't show partiality. Do love everybody, your neighbour as yourself. And why? Never forget that you and I are living under the law of mercy. So that's the outline. Let's just unpack that a little because I believe that there are some things that are really important for us to weigh and consider here in our own lives. So if you're anything like me, I read that passage, and at first glance, I think, well, I'm doing okay. You know, I I don't show any preferential treatment to people with lots of rings and fine robes. So I must be doing okay. And to be honest, as I prepared this message, I thought, you know, I'm not really someone, I don't think, who judges people, is a respecter of persons necessarily. Well, I'd encourage you, if you can this week, take a moment to just examine your own heart and life because the more I've examined my own heart and life, the more I realise how easy it is and how regularly I form judgments. I elevate certain people above others. Let me give you one hopefully minor, somewhat perhaps humorous example it was a few years ago where Adam, Catherine and I were actually travelling around overseas and visiting some different churches, going to some different meetings. And Adam and I in particular went to Bethel Church that most of us would be aware of. We connected with a few people there, including the worship pastor. And he said to us, we're sitting down, me and Adam and this guy, Paul was his name. And he said, well, actually, you know, we a great conversation, talked about different things. He said, you know, we're actually having a meeting tonight at Brian and Jen Johnson's house, who are the head of Bethel Music, with all the worship leaders of the Bethel Music Collective. Would you guys like to come along? And I saw Adam's eyes light up. It was like kid in a candy store. And so we said, absolutely, we'd love to come along. And most of us would probably be aware of Bethel Music and some of their worship leaders. And you know, these, these are minor Christian celebrities, like they're people of some prominence and renown. And so we were preparing to go along that particular evening and I called my wife and she's like, how are you going? I said, oh, going okay. We're just heading along to Brian and Jen Johnson's house for dinner tonight. And she said, what? Are you serious? This is exactly what she said. She said, oh, well, make sure you get a picture of the house for me. (laughs) And I thought, We all process differently, don't we? I was thinking, if 
photo of the celebrity, selfie, something. She says, make sure you take a picture of the house. So Adam and I were there. We'd arrived at their house, beautiful property, a little bit outside Reading, and uh, pulled out of the car, and I'm secretly just taking some pictures of the house, <laughs> walking through, picture of the kitchen. We're saying hello to some different people, and, you know, Brian and Jen were there, all the other worship leaders saying hello. We go through the house. Adam's just in absolute heaven and it was, it was a good experience. And then we walk through the house, out in the courtyard, and standing right before us is a particular worship leader who's always been one of my personal favourites, Jeremy Riddle. Anyone know Jeremy Riddle? And there he is. And you know, it was funny, something came over me in that particular moment. Adam will tell you. And so Jeremy was there, and all of a sudden he was coming towards us. I said, Adam, he's coming towards us. <laughs> it's Jeremy Riddle. And, and this is exactly the way it happened. I was thinking in my mind, I've got to say something really intelligent here. I've got to make a really good impression. This is a minor Christian celebrity, Jeremy Riddle. He's coming over, and I don't know exactly what I said, but I know how it came out. He reached out, he shook my hand, and I said, Hi! It's really nice to meet you. I'm a really big fan. It was something along those sort of lines. And I thought to myself, what on earth just happened? And if you want to know the rest of the story, it went from bad to worse. And I was thinking in my mind, I'm thinking, I've got to pull up from here. I need to talk to him about something. Don't want to ask all the cliche questions. And I knew that his wife was into homesteading. Like she had a property, she made her own jams. And so my opening question was something like, I hear you make jams or something like that. (laughs) He said, what? And very graciously, we had a five-minute conversation, Adam will tell you, about jam making and homesteading. We're walking away. (laughs) And then Adam looks at me. He's like, you didn't just really talk to Jeremy for five minutes about Mike making jams and said, you're not to tell anybody. <laughs> it won't be pretty. Anyway, a humorous story told for this particular perspective. And I could tell you many other examples that were in the negative sense. You know, For example, I've never once felt the same level of gushiness about the person who sits next to me on the bus with bad BO. In fact, I avoid buses for that exact reason. It's way too claustrophobic. I've never felt that same level of respect and honour and admiration for that serial caller who, of course, none of you are in this category, but we all have that friend or that family member in the middle of a busy week and their name pops up on the screen. But if it was Jeremy Riddle, then it's a different story. What's the point? The point is simply this. It is so easy for us to make judgments based on what we see on the outside. There's endless reasons for partiality, not just musical ability. It might be wealth, status, clothes, political views, the type of phone that we use. I mean, we have endless reasons. And if we're perfectly honest, we endlessly make judgments and show partiality towards other people. And that's what James is really getting 
to the heart of here. He's saying, in the world, that is the case. I mean, that's perfectly normal. If you have money and you come in a room and you're in a robe with nice rings, you're expecting the front seats. You're expecting that it's going to get you somewhere. And in fact, not only in the world, but James is speaking in the midst of a religious system where the priests weren't much better. They put on display their righteous acts. They made distinctions constantly between the haves and the have-nots. But James is saying it's got to be different in the church. It's got to be different as people of faith. In fact, he says, if you show partiality, you are standing in opposition with the heart of the gospel message. How can he make such radical statements? Well, think this through with me. See, the gospel has this complete leveling effects. First of all, we are all equally created. We are. The Bible proclaims that before the foundation of the world was laid, that each and every one of us was purposed in his heart, was created in the image of God. There's no distinctions. Every single life is of equal value and equally worth. We're equally created. We're equally loved. For God so loved the world. He so loved each and every one of us. I mean, just take a moment when you can and look around the room and just allow that reality. Every single person in this room is equally created in the image of God. You're equally loved. You're of equal value and of equal worth. The other not so pleasant reality is that everybody in this room is equally as fallen, equally as sinful. A theological word we use sometimes is equally as depraved. It's not very nice, but it is the reality that all of us have fallen short. And that's so disconcerting. That's so hard for us to come to terms with. Really? Are we really no better in our fallen state, apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of how moral a life we live, than someone who is out there committing all sorts of atrocities? And the reality is, yes, the Bible says that we're dead in our sins. And there's only one level of dead. You're either dead or you're dead or you're dead. And everybody who is dead is equally in need of resurrection. So we're equally created, equally loved, equally sinful. And then if we believe in the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are equally saved. It's the same blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed for every one of us. It's the same salvation that is offered as a free gift that we receive. We're equally saved. Not once did Jesus say, well, the blood wasn't sufficient. Might need a second go. We are equally saved. In fact, you know, we're in a society and a world that really is crying out for equality. We need equality. You know, the reality is the only equality that ever is going to be found 
is in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, is in the message of the gospel, is in what the Bible proclaims. We're all equally loved, created, purposed and planned in God's image. Evolution is not going to get you there. Atheism is not going to get you there. Secularism. There's no other philosophy that comes anywhere close to the equality that's proclaimed in the biblical message. We are completely equal. So here is the truth. With that in mind, what an affront it is to God, to his purpose and his plan of redemption, to what he's done for us. For us then to come and say, well, thank you, God, but no, still this person is more important than this person. These people do that, that thing, therefore they're in this category. These people do those things, therefore they're in that category. Can you see how showing partiality and making judgments stands in direct opposition to the message of the gospel? They're mutually exclusive. It's one or the other. Either we're all even, equally created, equally depraved, equally saved, equally loved, or we're not. And that is both the joy and the challenge of the gospel, particularly in the time that James was writing, because these people were in a society where you know, there was a great differential in terms of societal value and worth. So James begins, he says, do not show partiality. But then he goes on and he says, but do in verse 8, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I don't think we can talk about this passage without jumping over to Luke 10. Because of course he's referencing here, you just turn with me really quickly. What does that mean? What does it really mean for us to love our neighbor? Because I think sometimes we, we get it on some level, but do we actually grasp the reality of what it means to love our neighbor? And we're heading for verse 37, but let's just do a quick recap. You can follow along. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, There's a lawyer. He stands up. He's someone who knows the law. He knows the technicalities. He knows the details. He says, teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answers Jesus, we love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your strength, with all your mind, your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But here's this lawyer again. He's still standing up. And I love this phrase. He says, but desiring to justify himself. How many of us have ever been in that camp? Desperately desiring to justify myself. I want to feel okay in the things that I'm doing. He says to Jesus, all right, but who is my neighbor? And of course, Jesus tells him a very well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, there's a man. He was traveling Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among the robbers who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving half dead. By chance, there's a priest, he ignores him. Then a Levite passing by, he too ignores him. But verse 33, then a Samaritan, an enemy of the Israelite people. As he journeyed, he came to where he was, he saw him, he had compassion, he bound up his wounds, he took him, 
to where he could get medical care. He said, put it on my account. Anything it costs. He showed him incredible kindness and love, mercy. So Jesus then asked him in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell amongst the robbers? And he said, being the lawyer, this man who stood up to justify himself, he said, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. What does it mean to love our neighbors? Jesus says it's to show mercy. And the picture he's painted is mercy to someone who least deserved it. An enemy. He'd been beaten. Most of us would probably think, well, he, he, he got what he deserved. Just leave him there. But Jesus says, no, that's what it means to love your neighbor, is to go and show him mercy. And Jesus said to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. Tim Keller has this great quote in his book, Gospel and Life. He says this, a merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality, respectability, will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. I've worked hard to get where I am, he says, and so can everyone else. That's the language of the moralist's heart. But the language of the true Christian or the true believer's heart says this, I'm only where I am by the sheer and unmerited mercy of God. I'm completely equal with all other people. A sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of God's grace. What's he saying? He's saying this, do you want to see those who have grabbed a hold of grace? Those who understand the mercy and the salvation of God. Where do you look? He says you look to those who have mercy, show mercy and care for those who are around them. So that's what James is encouraging us to be, saying don't be someone who shows partiality. Do be a people of mercy. Are we a people of mercy? Am I? Am I a person of mercy? Is my most natural response to find even my enemy lying by the side of the road and all I can do, so compelled because I've encountered the mercy of God, the only possible response is to bend down, to pick them up, to love them, to say, put it on my account. I mean, if I'm honest, that is a challenge. And I'd love to say that I'm there. But where, where am I? Am I a person of judgment? Certainly am that. Or am I a person of mercy? See, so often we pray as a church, God, would you bring in people? Would you bring in the lost? I pray regularly, God, let us see a revival in our city. Let's see the people who are lost and hurting and broken coming in. We've prayed into it. We've had visions, dreams. We've had things that God has spoken over us. How can we prepare for what God wants to do? 
or right at the top of the list is we've got to be a people of mercy, not judgment. Because what are they going to get when they come in the four walls of this church? So often, the first thing they get is not mercy, but judgment. Have you seen what you're wearing? Have you showered in the last week? I'm sorry, you can't do those things in church. Now, would you mind maybe just heading up to the back? We've got a special room prepared outside, right outside the auditorium for people like you. Or are we a people? And the first thing that comes forth from us, regardless of what people look like, regardless of what sort of sin we find them entangled in and compromised with, and our very first response is to embrace them, to put an arm around them, to love them, to care for them, to pick them up. Whatever you need, you can count on me. Put it on my tap. I tell you, I want to be a person of mercy. And I want us to be a church that knows what it is to be people of mercy, not judgment. So don't show partiality. Do learn, and it's a process of learning, and I'm still in progress, to love our neighbours as ourselves. Why? He finishes off in verse 12. Speak and act, he says, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy, for judgment is without mercy to one who's shown no mercy but mercy triumphs over judgment. What's he saying here? This is the why. He's saying never forget this. Never forget the reality that you are a people who live under mercy. Think about this. The Bible says that all of us stand before God. We give an account of our lives. What is it that will be our cry as we stand before him? Will it be judgment? God, give me judgment. Give me everything I deserve. Or will it be mercy? God, I'm leaning on your mercy. You're standing there thinking about the lives. God said, well, I gave you my commandments. You know, did you honor your parents? Did you bear fault witness? Did you tell a lie? Let's just play that tape, shall we? How long are most of us going to last before we fall on our knees and cry out for mercy? What we really want is mercy. Yes? Yeah, that's a point for yes. Ultimately, we want mercy. The good news is that the Christian gospel is the triumph of mercy over judgment. See, the more you look into it, what you see is not this God who's just waiting and longing to judge. Like that's the delight of his heart is just to punish people. The more you look into this book, the more you examine the Christian message, you cannot help but coming away with this incredible reality of a loving father who stands there willing, wanting, longing to extend mercy even when it's least deserved. From the beginning, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, through the unfaithfulness of God's chosen people. <clears throat> we see it even in the genealogy of Christ himself. There's 
prostitutes, harlots, criminals, idol worshippers, swindlers, drunkards. It's quite some parentage. But your family line was in some trouble. What, what's that about? It's the triumph of mercy over judgment. What about the king of glory born in a feeding trough in Bethlehem, growing up in Nazareth? They said, who comes from Nazareth? The king of heaven's armies came not to rub shoulders with the who's who, but with the outcasts, the lepers, the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. What's that all about? It's about the triumph of mercy over judgment. Mercy that leaves us breathless, that leaves us thirsting for more, that leaves us with no other option than for mercy to be the natural extension of our lives. And you see, James leaves us with one final thought, one final warning. Verse 13, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Echoing the words of Christ, Matthew 7, 1, it says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. What is Jesus saying? What's James echoing? He's saying, it's your call. What will you be? A people of judgment or a people of mercy? I think if we think about it, we really know which camp we want to be in. The problem is we can't have it both ways. So I want you to put your Bibles away. I want you to close your eyes. We're going to finish off this morning with communion. We're going to come to the table of mercy, the king of mercy. What a gift it is that he has offered us. We're going to celebrate his mercy. We're going to give thanks to his mercy. But before we move and do that, just with your eyes closed, I've got a song we're going to play in a moment. And I want to give each of us a moment with the Lord, a moment to examine our hearts. And maybe it is just in this quiet place before the Lord that you realize that there are some judgments. You know, I've realized this week that so often I judge even before I think. It's so natural. I've had to repent to the Lord of being someone who so readily lives in the camp of judgment rather than the camp of mercy. And it may be just in these moments that the Lord brings a person to your heart. Maybe it's a people group. Maybe it's a situation, a circumstance. Maybe it's even someone who you considered your enemy. Where the only thought you have is, oh, I just want to kick them while they're down. But there's an opportunity for each of us this morning. I believe God wants to give us the grace to move from judgment, to be a people of mercy. And that begins as we learn to love our neighbors. How do we do that? Jesus says, it's the one who shows mercy.
So as this song plays, as you just do what you need to do, if you need to repent of some things, repent. You need to deal with some things, deal with them. And then as you're ready, there is a communion table at the front. There's a communion table at the back. If I could get the Chilcots just to monitor the one at the back. And Peter, would you mind looking out to the table at the front? In your own time, as you feel you're ready, boldly then approach, having extended mercy, and receive afresh the wonder of the mercy that the King of Kings offers to each one of us. The end of communion, if you want prayer for anything, you're welcome just to come forward. There's a prayer team who would love nothing more than to stand with you and to pray about any and every prayer need you have. So just take that moment this morning as this song plays, and as you're ready, front and back, let's join in communion together.